Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wandri and Boonurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. And welcome back to Wednesday Breakfast's first live show of the year. Very exciting stuff. It's very exciting. It's, yeah, it's mad. Like, January's gone really quickly, I feel. It feels like we weren't in here that long ago, but actually we were. Yes, time has gone quick and already I'm back here with my jar of coffee again. (laughs) Yeah, Ella's got her litre of coffee in a glass jar. Um, And I have got a double shot long black. Ooh, have you always been a long black drinker? Um, I think these early mornings have have got me there. Mm. I never used to even be that bothered about coffee, actually. And I still feel like I give it too much credit, if you know what I mean. I'm one of those people who are like, oh, I need a coffee, I just need a coffee. Oh, yeah, but <laughs> Whatever it takes, though. <laughs> I know, I'm like... Maybe, I think it's part of, like, the smell of it as well. I feel the smell of it just instantly gets me, my juices flowing. Mm, Placebo or not, it works. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. But, um, yeah, so summer broadcasting has come to an end, and now we're back. We're back. And you had a quick break? Was it a good break, Alice? It was good, yeah. It was a really nice break. Stayed in Melbourne for parts of it and went to South Australia and did some camping for some other parts. Um, which felt actually quite, um, it felt like quite a lot of effort to do camping after the a really long year that we've had. Um, mm. So I was tired actually <laughs> for quite a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, it was we were just um, talking about the politics of car packing before when we went yeah. away on a trip. It can be tough. <laughs> it can. Like I'd, there's just a couple of personalities that you typically get when you go camping and. One of them seems to be there's always somebody that wants to just repack the car all the time, and um, <laughs> oh, those kinds of people. those <laughs> those kinds of people. And so I, yeah, I'm not like that. My partner is like that. And so the moment we would sort of sit down, we finally unpacked the tents up, the the stoves out, the eskies are in the in they're in the shade, you know, like everything's there, um, and we sit down. And, yeah, my my partner's first words are just like, hmm, I just, I haven't nailed it. haven't nailed it yet. <laughs> I need to, need to repack the car. I need to do this. I need to do that. I'm like, oh, God. Like, I guess that's his idea of a holiday. It is. <laughs> it actually is. Like, he really loves repacking the car and, like, organising the car. So 
There you go. I mean, who am I to take that away from him? Mm, absolutely. So <laughs> he just gets on with that. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'll just crack a beer open and chill out. But yeah, what about your holiday? Yeah, I got up to Brisbane to see my family and some friends, which was really nice. Um, so yeah, my Beautiful. best friend loves, lives up in Brisbane as well, and she's got a little kid and another one on the way. So it's really nice to see them and yeah, catch up with my parents, my brother. That's nice. Had it been a while since you had gone back to Brizzy? Brizzy? Yeah, I mean about a year. So I think I was there this time last year. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's um, a year's a long time, especially if you've got a little kid. So it's yeah. Nice to get back. Oh, that's Um, lovely. And yeah, as I was saying to you just before we went on air, then I came back and it felt a bit like being back in lockdown, coming back to Melbourne. Everyone was, yeah, either um, had COVID or was um, laying low to avoid getting it. So it was a quiet return. Mm, mm. Um, Yeah, it's been a quiet start to the year, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think just getting used to the new... um, situation i suppose i was going to say normal but i hate when people say that so (laughs) yeah like it's never the new normal like it's changing too much like you can't it's still unpredictable which is a shame it would have nice to have felt like there was some normalcy going into the year but actually it's just not like we we yeah without sounding too pessimistic or whatever like we don't know what the next couple of months are going to look like again. And that just seems to be the last couple of years for us. Yeah, yeah, things are changing all the time. Um, And now, yeah, we've got um, so many cases and less restrictions. It's almost like more grey areas when we had restrictions. At least it was very clear what you could and couldn't do, whereas now I feel like I'm having to run through that decision-making process every time I leave the house and Mm -hmm. wonder is it the right decision who do i need to let know and yeah oh for sure i think the onus has definitely become on us to be track and trace to be the yeah take full responsibility of of our own personal rules i know there's lots of people who yeah don't want to meet up with people despite what rules official officially say um and yeah, I feel like we're becoming more and more responsible for for what's going on, which is really strange. I'm just like, I don't really know. Yeah, yeah, it's a minefield. <laughs> it is a minefield. It is. But for yeah, listeners, welcome to Wednesday breakfast. This is mine <laughs> and Ella's first chat about about everything since. So you heard that live. First catch-up of the year. <laughs> yeah, first catch-up of the year. You're welcome. Um, and so what have we got planned for today? Yeah, so we're going to start off our first show with a couple of um, listen-backs to episodes from last year. So last week, sorry, I promised listeners they'd hear an episode, uh, uh, sorry, an interview with Tana Douglas, that Paddy Dobson, our former Wednesday breakfast host, did last year. Paddy! Um, and I run through ran through into a couple of uh, hiccups when I ran into the studio to put it on and we didn't get time for this one so I thought we'd listen to that this morning. Um, great to hear Patty so, yeah, again. It'd be nice to hear Patty's voice again and he'll be speaking to Tana Douglas who's Australia's first female roadie and she uh, talked to Patty about her memoir Loud and how COVID was impacting the music industry at the time. Mm. So this was recorded in April last year. Very cool. 
And then at 7.45, um, I'll be speaking to Dr. Cassandra Goldie, who is the CEO at the Australian Council of Social Services, otherwise known as ACOS. And um, Cassandra is going to just be talking to us about the changes that the federal government recently made in the pandemic leave disaster payments. And that came into effect yesterday. So yesterday there have been changes made to the amount of money that people can expect to receive if they're eligible. So Cassandra is going to get into that with us. And I think that's a really important conversation. Yeah, absolutely. another one of those grey areas. No one seems to know what you can and can't get and how to get it. So it'll be, yeah, good yeah. to hear the latest. And I had a quick scan just of the what was going on online this morning. Nobody seems to be talking about this either. So this is information that potentially has gone really under the radar and Cassandra is going to fill us in with it. So I'm really looking forward to getting up to scratch with that. And then at 8.10, we're going to be speaking to Pamela Kerr from the Refugee Advocacy Network about Andrew Wilkie's bill. And that bill is Ending Indefinite and Arbitrary Immigration Detention Bill 2021. So that is going to be calling for, well, they are calling for submissions. And there is a deadline for that as the 28th of January this, this month. So we need to, yeah get typing, get typing out written submissions, send those across and Pamela's going to tell us all about it and how we can do that. Excellent. And one more in there. I forgot to jump in earlier. So, oh, sorry, Anna. Uh, no, no, I was, in, uh, I was a little slow on the update. <laughs> You've got to be quick. Yeah, You've got to be quick it on a Wednesday break Go, go, go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, after Patty's interview, we're going to listen back to one of Claudia's interviews last year on modern slavery. Um, So Claudia spoke with Dr. Katie Hepworth from the Australian Centre for Corporate Responsibility uh, about workers' rights and modern slavery in the supply chains of Australian companies. So that was a good one. I'm looking forward to rehearing. Yeah. But uh, first, shall we get started with some tunes? Let's do it. What have you got for us? uh, We're going to start with Oral Risk from Asphyxiation. Mm. Melbourne band, I believe. Cool.
Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yema Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and before the break we heard Asphyxiation with Oral Risk. And now we're going to take a listen to an interview from former Wednesday Breakfast host, Paddy Dobson. Paddy, you're sorely missed if you're listening. Um, And last year in March, Paddy spoke with Australia's first female roadie, Tana Douglas. So she told Paddy all about her memoir, Loud, and talked a bit about the impact of COVID on the music industry at the time. So... Uh, Patty starts by asking Tana about the importance of music in her life. Music was really important. It was, in my mind, the only steady thing in my life. You know, I could I could rely on it, if that makes sense. Um, I had I had a pretty bad um, childhood, so it was very erratic and and quite you know violent at times and and just not at all nurturing. So what I would do is I would just escape to my room and I'd put in my little earplug. You know, you only had one in those days. <laughs> put in my little, put in my little one earplug and stick my head under the pillow and listen to my transistor radio. You know, and it would just take me away. You know, and that's what I wanted. I wanted to get away. So that's what music did for me. It, it transported me somewhere else. I think it's something that uh, a lot of people can identify with, especially during these lockdown times where, you know, they might be set, you know, you might be living alone, alone and separated from everyone and the radio and music and um, spoken word plays a big role in people's lives. Yeah, that will always be the case with music, I feel. It's, it's such a strong soul healer, I guess is a way to put it. You know, it's, it's something that, you know, you can come to terms with, you can come to terms with it on your own terms, you know, but it, it's there. And, and it's supportive, and it just makes you feel good. <laughs> <laughs> and from your yeah, tough, tough beginnings in Queensland, it's a long and winding road to working on the big shows. Uh, your first production work was a non-musical live performance on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Could you tell us that story? <laughs> yeah, that was my first dally with production of any sort, and even though it wasn't music, as you say, it was uh, the tightrope walker, Philippe Petit, He'd come out for Nimbin Festival, which was up uh, above Byron Bay area where, well, I guess everyone knows where Nimbin is now. It's still going after all these years. And um, (laughs) little did we know at the time. And, um, yeah, and what we did is we took off down to um, Sydney, and that was his main plan was to walk between the towers, you know. And that was a production 
in itself, even though there wasn't music involved, you know. They had the blueprints for the bridge. They had to get the steel cables right. They had to rig everything. They had to get his, like, his balance pole and make sure it was just right. So when he's up there and, you know, and he could, because he not only walked, but he actually stopped and lay down on the wire, which was just amazing. Wow. And yeah, it was it was absolutely amazing, and and it was it became one of his standard go-to things. You know, he did that when he was crossing between the twin towers, which was his next major walk after that. So yes, I mean he was a performer, and and that was a production, and and that sort of set the tone for me that you know there was there was an excitement to it, there was you know a time pressure to it, there was this has to be done now, it's got to be done on time, it's got to be done right. And I just thrived on it. I thought it was fabulous. So that whet my appetite. And then if I could put music into the picture, which I was lucky enough to do by becoming a roadie, I was in heaven. Now, so you were the first female roadie. And in the postscript for Loud, you mentioned that currently only 12% of the music industry touring workforce is made up of women. Um, Well, as the first female roadie, could you talk about that experience, the challenges you faced coming up in the industry and the headway you made? Yeah, I mean, it was hard. It was, a, it was a wild and woolly time, you know. I mean, there were no rules. Everyone was just, you know, it was every man for himself pretty much, you know. And, and it was hard work and it was long hours and it was multiple shows in a day in different locations. And, you know, you just had to be in there for the long haul. You know, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't be two shows into the day and go, oh, you know, I'm a bit tired. I think I'll skip the next one. <laughs> it just doesn't, doesn't work like that. You know, you, once you're in, you're in. Once you're in, you're in. And so, you know, that's, and, and, you know, so physically it's demanding, mentally it's demanding. Well, let's just go back to that statistic for a moment. An estimated 12% of the music industry touring workforce is made up of women, uh, but women are also underrepresented other ways in the music industry, such as uh, the number of female acts headlining music festivals. Have you, how have you seen the industry change and what work still needs to be done in terms of representation? Yeah, I mean, it's still a low number. I mean, it, it's, it's a very low number. And, and originally in the early days, so to speak, you know, it was almost considered a bit of a hassle if it was a female. You know, it's like, oh, do we have to make special conditions for her or, you know, and, and which you don't, you know. I mean, just, just the basic essentials we can survive with. But it was just felt that it was a male-dominated industry and it was just easier men being men men amongst themselves you know now there are you know that it, it is considered i mean you know female artists are incredibly talented you know they're also you know huge money makers in the industry and so the industry as a business now it's become this huge business machine is accommodating for that and you know it's starting to trickle down into the road crew side as well you know even though you know we don't make any special demands we can't we're just part of a crew but because the conditions have changed where there are now, like, for example, there's backstage restrooms that you can use. You know, there's showers you can have after the show. There's, you know, just basic needs that, that you know, everyone needs, really. But it makes it more, um, it makes it more appealing for females to actually want to do it, I think. You know, because there are some creature comforts, at least. <laughs> <laughs> now, I imagine... You know, apart- yeah, apart from all the, you know, the equipment needs and everything, you know, I mean, we don't expect anything, any special treatment. We come to do a job. Yeah, exactly. Now, you must have seen thousands of live shows, um, admittedly, from backstage, I guess. Uh, do you have a favourite live performance? 
Wow, you know, that's so hard. Um, you know, there's a few different, a few different shows that, that, are, that are favorites for different reasons. You know, like um, when I was with Elton and we did uh, Madison Square Garden and Yoko came on stage with Sean and there was a tribute to John Lennon. That was a special show, you know. That was that was a good show, and the and the music for that show that night, the performance by the band was really really good, you know. So that that was a good show, you know. There's you know there's different shows for different reasons, you know. Whether you know you're at a Lollapalooza concert and watching Pearl Jam go off, I mean they were in their element there, you know. It was just a great thing to watch, you know. You'd see the crowd going. Mosh pits were all new at the time, so. You know, things like that affect the performance. And it usually leads back to the audience, to be honest. You know, if the audience isn't getting it, then it makes the show really much more difficult. But, you know, these, all these shows, you know, I mean, and that's what we're missing right now is the live contact performances, you know, where everybody feeds off each other's energy. You know, that's what a live show is all about. I was about to say that you're making me uh, feel nostalgic for live music. Now, you're based in L.A. Um, just in the last week, California has surpassed New York for total number of COVID-related deaths. So I'm guessing there's not many live shows going on where you are. Um, how has coronavirus impacted the live music industry? And what do you reckon the road to recovery looks like? It's crippled it. The industry's crippled. You know, it's crippled in America. It's crippled in Europe. It's crippled in the U.K., I mean, you guys are fortunate, you know, you can at least do some sorts of shows at the moment, you know, even though I think Melbourne just went into shutdown yesterday, you know, which was a bit tough or the day before. And, um, but, you know, what that does in itself is it affects travel. There's no, there's not going to be any international tours because you can't afford to do an international tour if you don't hit all of the markets. You know, you can't just say, oh, Australia's open, let's go there it's not economically feasible, you know, and then it's like, well, in two months, England might be open, but you might book the tour, but by the time the dates come up, it may be shut down again. So, I mean, there's no one's willing to insure a show at the moment, a concert, because they don't know if it's going to happen or not. Who's going to pay that? Who's going to put that bill? I mean, it's decimated at the moment. It really is. And um, crew people especially are suffering majorly, major, all over the world, because we fall through the cracks where we're you know, private contractors, you know, as far as like medical insurance and that goes, we have to be able to have an income so we can pay bills, you know, so there's no medical coverage, you know, there's house payments, there's car payments, none of these things are being met, everyone's burning through their 401ks, I'm, I'm not sure what you call it in Australia anymore. Ah, uh, super, know. I think. But superannuation, yeah, so, you know, all of those things are gone for an entire you know, like three decades worth of workers have lost everything just because of the past 12, what's now coming up to 18 months, you know, and it's going to go on. All the, all the stomach concerts have cancelled again, so that's not going to happen. And, you know, they were thinking maybe August, but now it doesn't look like that either. So we're again looking at a whole other year. So it's just decimating the industry. It really is. And coming back is going to be a hard road. It is, but, it, you know, music plays such an important role in people's lives like you said at the start of the interview you know it is this healing force and i really do hope that we um, start to see some live shows come back soon i know that some bands have tried to you know do online shows or even like in drive-ins i've seen uh, shows done that way but it doesn't have that uh, same feeling as being shoulder to shoulder 
Exactly. You've got to be, you've got to be in the thick of it because that's where the energy comes from. It's, it really is just feeding off each other. You know, it's, it's, everyone becomes equal. You know, you can be a banker, you can be a punk rocker, you can be a mum of four kids, and, you know, you can be an, an unemployed dad, and you're all standing in a row in a festival, and it's all the same. You're all one. You know, it's a great equaliser. And that's what we need right now is we need some equalizing going on, especially in this country. You know, so we need live music back and we just have to figure out a way that we can do it. You're listening to 3CR and we just heard Patty Dobson speaking with Tana Douglas about her memoir, Loud. Now we're going to go to a track from Camino del, uh, from Antenna. Sorry, this is Camino del Sol. Uh, when we come back, we're going to hear about modern slavery.
Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and now we're going to be hearing about modern slavery. Claudia spoke with Dr. Katie Hepworth last year. Hi, I'm Claudia. Over the past few weeks, we've been discussing the responsibilities of Australian companies for modern slavery. We spoke to research fellow Dr. Na Fang from the Monash Centre for Financial Studies, who explained that certain companies and other large organisations in Australia are required to disclose the risks of modern slavery in their operations and supply chains, as well as the actions taken to address those risks. For those of you who missed the segment, Australian law defines slavery as circumstances where coercion, threats or deception are used to exploit victims and undermine or deprive them of their freedom. This includes practices such as human trafficking, forced labour, debt bondage, slavery and forced marriage. Today, we're going to hear from Dr Katie Hepworth, a self-described labour, migration and supply chain tragic She's also the Director of Workers' Rights at the Australian Centre for Corporate Responsibility, an independent research and advocacy group focused on corporate Australia's management of issues such as labour, human rights and governance. We're going to talk to Katie about whether Australian laws requiring good reporting of modern slavery risks are actually effective, how wage theft and excessive working hours compromises a corporate's efforts to eradicate modern slavery, and modern slavery in Australia, where it's happening and why. Welcome, Katie, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me today, Claudia. Great to have you on the show. So we know that Australian law requires large companies to report their modern slavery risk profile and the actions they're taking to reduce risk. But the big question is whether this is having a meaningful impact. How, in your view, should impact or success be measured when it comes to modern slavery laws? And do you think the reporting obligations in Australia are likely to achieve that impact? They're really, really good questions. And I mean, I think in assessing impact in Australia, um, it's possibly a little bit too soon to tell. We've just had the first round of reporting from major companies um, released at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. But if we look to the similar act in the UK, I guess the signs aren't good. And our expectation is that we'll see very similar things happening in Australia as what we saw in the UK, which is very little, to be honest. Um, So a report was released earlier this year that assessed five years of the Modern Slavery Act in the UK, and it found that there had been very, very little change in company company performance on modern slavery. And that while there have been some improvements in the reporting by companies, we actually hadn't seen practices on the ground. 
Um, Australia's Modern Slavery Act, for those that missed last week's and are across it, really just requires companies to disclose more, so basically to report more. So they're just required to identify where the risks might be in their supply chain and also what steps they might be taking um, to address those risks. But it doesn't require that those those risks, um, risk mitigation strategies are effective or that they actually take action to reduce modern slavery in the supply chain. The assumption is that if they report, consumers and investors will do that work to pressure their companies. Um, so when we get to the question of impact, I guess, I want to move away, and the work that we're doing at ACCR is trying to move away from just looking at how good a company's report is to the practices that they have in place and whether those practices are just cosmetic compliance. Um, so, you know, People will have heard the term greenwashing in the climate movement, and a similar thing applies to modern slavery, um, and whether the things that they're putting in place actually work. So what's your view as to whether um, companies are responsible for actions in their supply chain, where that responsibility starts and finishes? We heard from Dr Pham last week that uh, an Australian company is likely to have good control and reporting over its tier one or its next supplier in the chain. But how does it work when it gets further down the train, chain? Uh, Dr. Pham said that it can be very complex and very much more difficult for companies to know what's going on and actually to have any effect on the uh, original source material provider yeah. So basically companies under the Act have a responsibility for their whole supply chain. So anywhere where their actions may contribute to modern slavery. So, yeah, that can go from what we call tier one. So the first layer um, all the way down to kind of raw material manufacturing. Um, of course, they have different responsibilities, I guess, to act um, depending on where it is in their supply chain. And I think a kind of rule of thumb that we use is, the amount of leverage that they have um, over a company. So that depends on like how much power they have to kind of control a supplier. So if they're the only, if they're the only company that is ordering or one of only a few companies that is ordering from a particular factor, a factory, then they have a lot of control over that factory and can really take steps to kind of leverage it um, and make improvements. The other thing is, I guess, the level of the risk. And so the higher the risk, um, of modern slavery and I guess the severity of the impacts on people, the greater the expectation that they go deeper. So um, where we see companies really going back all the way to supply chains is things like in tech where we know that the sourcing of raw materials can often involve child labour, can often involve kind of um, sort of war zones and kind of militarised areas and that because that's known, there is an expectation that companies drill right back to that part of the supply chain. At the moment in Australia, we're really seeing companies just go to um, to tier one, really, in their mapping and not much further than that. Um, I'd argue, and I have heard companies argue, that it is very complex. Um, I'd say that they didn't just fall into these supply chains. Uh, companies around the world have been responsible over the last few decades of building really, really complex supply chains. So they had a hand in developing these supply chains, and so they can also... Um, have a hand in, I guess, in overseeing them. So how do you see, uh, for example, um, 
Dr. Pham talked about solar panels being uh, supplied by materials uh, in provinces of China which use forced labour. How would you see that sort of control or power um, being used practically? Yeah, look, this is a very live question at the moment, and I think it's been really confronting for many people in the renewables industry to realise that such a huge percentage of solar panels um, have materials that pass through Xinjiang um, and are potentially produced with Uyghur forced labour. I think the stats were something like 45% of the world's global supply uh, solar supply chains get materials um, from the Uyghur um, zones. Um, at the moment, I think that there is a real responsibility on these companies to understand those supply chains and I think take steps to kind of certify where they come from. What we do know is that there is enough material in other parts of China and other parts of the world to, um, I guess, supply the world's solar panel needs. And I think there is a responsibility to understand why, to really understand and try and Make, take efforts to uh, address the supply chain issues there by companies. China is an interesting one here, and I don't want to kind of single them out because I think there's forced labour all over the world. Um, I think, you know, this is a, something that, you know, nowhere in the world is immune from forced labour, including Australia, but the level of kind of, I guess, genocidal kind of control over the Uyghur industries have really held it up as a particular area for, of um of observation and what we know is that there's huge audit corruption and things in China so it's really difficult I guess to assess whether or not um, goods have passed through some of these kind of forced labour camps in the country. So turning to Australia there are approximately 15,000 people that are working in conditions of modern slavery in this country. Which industries are involved and who is responsible for this abuse? Yeah, so the three industries that are at highest risk from modern slavery in Australia are horticulture, uh, the meat production industry, so abattoirs specifically, um, and commercial cleaning. So the people that clean the office buildings, our shopping centres um, around Australia. Um, we know that um, a large percentage of people that work on Australian farms that pick the fruit and vegetables that, you know, we all eat every day, um, have gone through conditions of modern slavery. And I just want to step back a second um, and explain what modern slavery looks like in Australia, because I think when people hear this term modern slavery, they think of old school slavery. So people on slave ships in chains um, and they sort of think that this can't possibly happen in Australia. They can't, you know, they can't conceptualise it here. But what it looks like in Australia is usually someone who has had their, a migrant worker who has had their passport taken by their boss. And so they are unable to kind of leave the work site because they do not have their identity documents anymore. And they're forced to work before they can get their identity documents back. It's workers that are threatened by, by violence, and that's sexual violence or physical violence, um, if they don't come to work, and threatened um, with being dogged into border force if they don't turn up to work, um, because many of the workers in the industry that I've talked, um, talked about uh, are filled with workers who either do not have work rights or who are working in, in excess of their work rights. So they're student visa holders that can only work 20 hours a week. And so... What we find is that these industries have a large percentage of vulnerable migrant workers who are working in excess of their hours. 
um, or working against their visa conditions um, in these areas. And so they become really open to being exploited by their employer, and that's the local farm owner or anyone else. Um, and really that that is why we see modern slavery in Australia. For me, the responsibility really lies at the top of the supply chain. Um, and when I talk about the top of the supply chain, I mean it's the people that are doing the procuring. So in horticulture, it's Coles and Woolworths that have 70% market share. So of all the fruit and vegetables produced in Australia, they buy 70% of it between them. Um, and again, in cleaning, it's the property owners. Um, Obviously, the contractors, so the farm owners or the contractors that you get in cleaning, they're the ones that engage the cleaners every day, but they're not the ones that are kind of setting the prices that have been driving down the prices. Um, and so all of them have to kind of work together. But really, if we look at that top, to, top end of the supply chain, that's where we can see the greatest amount of change if we really try and just change the way that, um, that food is bought, that cleaning services are contracted. So you feel that the prices that these products are being sold for at the retail end are influencing the pressure on the the fruit company that's actually contracting the fruit pickers as opposed to the fruit company uh, imposing these conditions uh, in the first place? Yeah, so I think this is... Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think it's a shared responsibility, so I don't want to let people off the hook for stealing um, passports and the rest. But um, I think what we've seen is an industry that is dependent on vulnerable migrant labour because of downward pressure on the supply chain. And also because, I guess, those supermarkets have allowed this to go unchecked um, because they know it exists in their supply chain and they have the power at any point to kick out non-compliant contractors, farm owners and other suppliers um, and really just kind of clean up that supply chain. You know, if they actually implemented the rules that they had on their books, um, we would see a wholesale change in the industry. Um, Taking the example of cleaning, I think what we've seen, I think it becomes even clearer when we look at cleaning sector is that we know for decades cleaning contracts have gone out where the price, the tender price is much lower than could ever deliver legal minimum wages. So the property owners basically contract a cleaning contractor, cleaning supplier, knowing that there is no way that they could actually pay minimum wages um, and deliver a properly clean building. So that's an interesting one because... It's different to fruit, which is something uh, we as consumers buy at the supermarket. Um, a cleaning service is something that we don't directly consume, we benefit from. Uh, can you talk about how that sort of relationship works in terms of power dynamics? Yeah, so, I mean, let's take a supermarket, uh, so let's take a shopping centre, for example. So, you know, you'll have a shopping centre owner or you'll have an office building owner. Um, and it used to be once upon a time that they would hire their own cleaners. Um, and those cleaners would work, um, in, in those locations. Um, and they would be employed by the owner of the building. Now, about three decades ago, they decided that they didn't want to run their own cleaners and employ their own cleaners or security guards, really. Um, and they decided to start outsourcing it to cleaning contractors. And so you've then got um, 
these cleaning contractors who will then subcontract out that work often and there'll often be multiple layers of subcontracting in there. Um, the property owners, there's only a handful of them and they have lots and lots of buildings. So they have a lot of power. So what we have is a supply chain, what we call an asymmetrical supply chain, where it is the people doing the contracting at the top of the supply chain that can really dictate the prices. And what we've seen is that when suppliers have tried to raise the wages and improve the conditions of cleaners working in your shopping centres and your office buildings, they'll often lose the next tender because they're not competitive enough. And so we know that those they do not have the power to really change the conditions on their own without the property owners getting involved. And that's why we're seeing now the emergence of, I guess, supply chain um, programs that bring suppliers, property owners and the union together to collaborate on fixing the um, the issues in the cleaning supply chain because alone they can't they can't fix it. Has there been any movement, um, positive movement as a result of those collaborations? We are seeing, I guess, um, a number of large unlisted property owners um, have signed up to an initiative called the Cleaning Accountability Framework, and they're now certifying their buildings and ensuring that in the buildings that they own, um, that they will use, um, I guess, a tender benchmark that will ensure legal minimum wages, and it will allow access to the union to all of the sites to kind of check that the wages that are like paid on paper are actually the wages that end up in the pockets of cleaners. And just coming back to um, the rankings of uh, the performance of Australia's top 100 publicly listed companies that Dr Pham talked about in terms of their reporting performance, uh, Woolworths was number one there and not wanting to single them out, but as mm. the number one on, on any rankings list, it sends a, a positive message about performance. And yet you've highlighted um, some examples where their buying power is putting pressure on uh, fruit producers and uh, then we're seeing these issues arising in the, the work practices of those um, employment situations. They also uh, have been involved in underpaying workers and have had uh, penalties imposed for cleaning contracts in around Australia. Um, how do you sort of align their number one ranking when it comes to modern slavery reporting with these other incidents of uh, exploitative work practices, if we can distinguish um, the two in that way? Mm. Yeah, look, I think this goes back to my earlier point around, I guess, flaws in the Act and whether the Act itself will lead to, to substantial change on its own. Um, and I guess um, the Act only requires companies to disclose. Um, it only requires them to report on their modern slavery risks and the steps they take um, to address that risk. It doesn't actually require them to fix the risks in their supply chain. So what we've seen, I think, is an emergence of really, really good reporting. And I would say that in with any kinds of human rights abuses, it's usually the companies that have historically performed worse that have the better reports. Um, and um, and I think it, it often acts, I guess, as a bit of a cover to issues that are going on in, in their supply chain. But what we have been doing, I guess, is drilling down 
into what practices do and don't work to fix supply chain. So we want to go beyond do they just report that they have supply chain issues and modern slavery risks in their supply chain to are they putting in place systems that we know work? Um, and to give an example of that is um, if we look at reporting of companies globally who are de- addressing modern slavery and labour exploitation, 80% of them talk about using a thing called a social audit. And an audit is, I guess, what it says on the box. It is someone, a third party who is hired to go down to a factory or a farm um, and really go through and check whether or not there is evidence of modern slavery there or whether there's evidence of safety breaches or something else. The issue is, is that we know these things don't work. Um, we know that something like Rana Plaza was audited only weeks before it collapsed. It passed its safety audit with flying colours the week before it collapsed. Um, and there's been a number of other tragedies around the world. And so if you're just looking at reporting, you can just tick off that companies are using these things like audits, like whistleblower hotlines. We need to go one step forward further than that and talk to companies about are the things that they're using working? Um, and if not, why are they continuing to use them? Are they really just looking for cosmetic compliance to have a shiny report to really just take the heat off them from consumers? Because I would say that a lot of consumers don't know how to assess, you know, is this system working or not? Um, I imagine a lot of consumers would want to know. I mean, we're, we're in that phase of consumer trends where we want to know where something's made, you know, what's in it, and the next stage might be who's making it and and how they're treated. Yeah, that's right. And so I think on that point, I think that's why the Modern Slavery Act and this reporting alone isn't going to fix things. I think the Act as it was designed was designed with the expectation that organisations like ACCR and others would use this reporting to drill down um, and look at it to kind of really pull out, um, you know, the issues and try and basically advocate to investors and to consumers about what we're seeing in the reporting. And so it's really just trying to give us the tools to do that and then take the next step. Amazing how it uh, ends up with the not-for-profits and um, (laughs) activist groups (laughs) bearing the responsibility. Um, We're almost out of time, so I just wanted to finally ask you how listeners can find out more about the work you're doing um, or get involved in supporting Action for Change. Yeah, look, so you can come to our website, which is accr.org.au. ACCR, as we mentioned before, is a shareholder advocacy organisation. We haven't talked a lot about that, but it means that we mobilise big investors to put pressure on companies. But we also need small investors. So if you hold shares in any of these big companies, you can kind of join us to put pressure on companies and you can sign up at our website. You can also put pressure on your super funds. So the big investors that we pressure are often the same people that has your have your super money invested in these companies so i'd be keeping an eye out on where your money is invested and using that as your real tool to kind of pressure these companies okay that's great well thank you so much for joining us um it's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, you. i will now uh, just give a few contact details so if you do want to get in touch with uh Katie's crew at ACCR. The website is 
accr.org.au. And importantly, most importantly, if you are needing help in this area uh, or are suspecting that um, there is someone that you know that is at risk of exploitation, you can call the Migrant Workers Centre on 03, if you're in Melbourne, 959-3516. That's a daytime number. Or the Migrant Workers website is www.migrantworkers.org.au forward slash get underscore help. And if you've got any Fair Work uh, complaints or inquiries, you can call the Fair Work Commission on 1300 799 Of course, if you're in an emergency situation, call triple zero. And if anything in this segment has raised issues for you, please call Lifeline on 131114. We'll be putting all those numbers uh, up on our website. You're listening to 3CR, and we just heard Claudia speaking with Dr Katie Hepworth from the Australian Centre for Corporate Responsibility about workers' rights and modern slavery in the supply chains of Australian companies. Now, our next segment is also going to take a look at workers in Australia and the systems in place which can leave them vulnerable. Thank you for that, Ella. Yes, and now my guest, Dr Cassandra Goldie, joins us. And um, Cassandra is the CEO at the Australian Council of Social Services, otherwise known as ACOS, and is here to tell us about how the federal government's most recent move is just driving another blow to casual workers across this pandemic. So, Cassandra, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, good morning. Good morning. And... Can you first just tell us a little bit about the changes that came into effect yesterday regarding the pandemic leave disaster payments? Yeah. So from August of 2020 up until a couple of days ago, if you were a a paid worker um, and you got COVID or you needed to isolate because you were close contact, for example, if you didn't have access to paid leave from your employer you could apply for the pandemic leave disaster payment. It's a payment of $750 per week, and you would receive that um, until you were in a position to return to um, paid work. Um, Unfortunately, despite our best efforts, that payment was not um, available to people who had the lease, actually those on youth allowance or or, um, job seeker. Um, of course, about one in four people on Social Security are doing casual paid work. Um, and we've been calling for the federal government to extend this pandemic leave disaster payment to include people on Social Security, uh, students and others that are, you know, rely on those precious extra dollars. And of course, if you get COVID, you can't, you can't go to work. Um, but instead, um, the federal government has decided to cut back on that um, pandemic leave payment. So from yesterday, um, if you lose less than 20 hours of paid work per week, you won't get $750. You'll only get $450. Um, and if you lose less than eight hours of paid work a week, you won't be eligible for anything. So instead of extending it in um, a 
stage of this pandemic where we've got hundreds of thousands of people, of course, who are contracting COVID, and we know that COVID uh, affects people with the least, the worst, in many different ways, including financially. Um, the government has cut back on this economic support, and we're appalled by this decision, and we'll continue to speak up and to urge National Cabinet to reverse it and to extend this um, payment so that um, people who desperately need additional financial assistance, if they get COVID or have to isolate, do get that support. Mm. And who is this? Who are these effects likely to affect the most? Well, it affects people with the least. Um, you know, we're talking often low-paid casual workers who don't have access to ongoing leave, paid leave of any kind from an employer. They don't have, you know, job security, um, but they rely so heavily, of course, on these additional um, dollars um, to cover the basics, food and housing, you know, rental rental costs. We know that rents have gone up, not down, um, around the country um, in, in the face of this pandemic. Um, and so we're very worried about what this will mean. It's placing low-paid workers in an impossible situation where they're being forced to, if you, you know, start to show symptoms, um, can, you know, will you persuade yourself, oh, it can't be COVID because if it's COVID, I've got to not go to work and then I don't have any income. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, Social Security, that job seeker payment is a brutal, slightly low 45 per day, uh, the government has cut right back on the adequacy of the unemployment payment. Um, so that terrible decision about, you know, do I do the right thing and, and you know, step up um, in the public health crisis, and of course people out there have done that over and over and over again, um, but because of the cuts back, cut back to this pandemic leave disaster payment, it's really putting um, those low-paid workers, mostly casual workers, in a very um, uh, difficult situation. And remember that many of those workers have been on the front line over and over again. We're talking about hospitality, retail, um, you know, people, those people often, um, you know, having multiple contacts with members of the public um, and um, often at very high risk of exposure to COVID. Um, look, we don't have really good data right now about the, the ways, different ways in which COVID is affecting different parts of the community, for example, by income. But we do know that in 2020, that it was low income people who were dying at four times the rate of the rest of the community because of the multiple different ways in which when you're on a low income, um, including on Social Security or as a low-paid casual worker, um, you are facing the multiple risks of, of contracting COVID and then of um, the multiple barriers you've got to keeping yourself safe, being able to isolate. Let's remember that there are additional costs associated with getting COVID mm-hmm. and there are additional costs big time right now in trying to protect yourself. Those rapid antigen tests are not free, are they? Mm-hmm. We're calling on the government to those free as well. Mm-hmm. And do you know if these changes are affecting those who are obviously testing positive and have to isolate and therefore can't go to work, but also those that have tested positive to COVID and are potentially experiencing symptoms of long COVID, those that are testing positive over and over again that actually can't get back to work? Yeah. 
So this is it. Um, if you are testing positive for COVID, you are eligible for this payment. As, you know, if you can show that you don't have access to paid leave from your employer. Um, and so this top-up payment of $750 was essential for people who are unable to go to work because of COVID reasons. Um, the, uh, you are eligible for the payment if you are a close contact and you have to isolate under the public health rules because you've, um, uh, you um, therefore... Um, needing to isolate. Mm. But of course, those rules about who is required to isolate are also being relaxed. Mm -hmm. So that's also affecting people's ability to access this payment. Um, and what we know is that um, overwhelmingly people are very on the ball about trying to keep themselves safe because they know the flow on effects to their loved ones and their communities. Um, if they are exposing their friends and family to COVID, they don't want to do that. But this is, as I say, the impossible position that we're placing people on low incomes in of um, being very worried that if you do the right thing by the public health rules, um, you risk having no income because you can't get access to the pandemic late payment. I mean, look, I, I do want to reiterate that if you've lost more than 20 hours of paid work, you are likely to still be eligible for this payment. So you should definitely um, get online or um, ring and see if you are eligible for a payment. Um, it's not disappearing altogether for everybody, but it's certainly being cut back. Mm. So it's it's going from 750 a week to 450 if you're eligible for it in certain situations. It's, that's it. Um, well, so it's $750 still mm -hmm. if you lose more than 20 hours of paid work uh, per week um, and you qualify. They've introduced what's now called a liquid asset test, um, which means you've got to show, um, depending on your circumstances, that you have less than a certain amount in your bank account. So they'll check that now. Right. They weren't doing it previously. Um, if you've lost less than 20 hours of paid work a week, it's been cut down to 450. And if it's less than eight hours of paid work a week, you will not get anything now. Now, if you've got eight hours of casual paid work a week, that can be the money that covers your food for the week, can't it? If you're mm -hmm. in very low income, um, eight hours of paid work a week is not enough. It's um, a significant amount of money. Um, and, of course, as I highlight over and over, there are multiple additional costs of dealing with COVID. Um, you know, this, it, it, uh, it, this is why this is such a health equity, uh, you know, con contrast for those on who are very wealthy and who have got large homes, who can isolate very easily. They can get online and pay the additional costs associated with purchasing from um, particular retailers who will deliver to the home and people on very low incomes who often rely on shopping around mm -hmm. to try and get discount food to, you know, bring their bill in very, you know, so they can afford to eat. And now they've got to, they've got to um, face those additional costs of trying to keep a food supply coming in. Um, and of course, the rapid antigen test, um, look, um, a number of weeks ago, the federal government announced that it was planning to make those rapid tests free 
for people who are concession card holders, but that has not happened yet. Mm. You know, it's not, it's, not, it's not happening until the 24th of January, and it will also only be free if you can get to particular suppliers who are part of the government scheme, um, and you're only eligible for a certain number um, in any given month. So there are some significant constraints on access to free rapid kits when that happens, but that's still not this week. So if you're dealing with COVID this week, uh, you are still... Um, if you're trying to get tested, um, facing costs of between, well, you know, we know the cost can be between 10 to $30 per test. And um, for a low-paid worker, that's food for several days. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't really take into account that a lot of people um, working less hours aren't doing so by choice. A lot of people are underemployed, so this money is really needed. So, as I say, we're calling on the federal government to um, reverse this decision. We're calling on them to extend the paid pandemic, the pandemic leave disaster payment to people on Social Security as well, with um, casual paid work or low paid work, um, who can't get um, access to paid leave from their employer. Um, and we're calling for those home testing kits to be made free for everybody. Yes, we have a supply problem. We need to sort out the supply problem, but we need to have the outcome that those kits become free for everybody because they are a crucial part of our defence to dealing with this virus. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Cassandra, for joining us today. That was a really important conversation, especially because I had a look um, just this morning and I can't see anybody talking about this, which shocked me. yeah, so this is um, this is um, why it's so important that we keep coming back out into the public arena and lifting up our voice for and with people on low incomes who are over and over again dealing with the worst, situ- you know, worst aspects of COVID. Um, it's why last week we wrote urgently to National Cabinet, including the Prime Minister, um, with uh, all of these recommendations that I've discussed already this morning, but also for National Cabinet to create a civil society rapid response group, which includes ACOS um, and our members who represent um, are the organisations of people on low income, single parents, people who are unemployed, people with a disability. They, Their voices and their interests need to be in the room at the highest levels of decision-making the federal government has, over the last weeks, had these behind-closed-doors meetings with business groups, um, but they are not um, um, having people on the lowest incomes and their interests represented at the highest levels, and we're urging National Cabinet, which is meeting tomorrow, to make a decision to create this rapid response group so that we can move away from very bad decisions like cutting the pandemic leave disaster payment in the face of the worst days mm. of this pandemic and that we're getting much better outcomes. So we'll continue to um, speak up about that, and we're thanking you very much for having me on this morning. Absolutely. Thank you for your work, Dr. Cassandra Goldie. Um, It's been great speaking with you this morning. Thank Thank you. you. And that was Dr. Cassandra Goldie, the CEO at the Australian Council of Social Services, otherwise known as ACOS. And she told us all about the federal government's most recent moves in just another hit on casual workers across this pandemic. Thank you, um, Cassandra, for filling us in with that.
and now maybe a song? Yeah, we're going to hear Fashion from Holy Balm.
Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and we just heard Holy Balm with fashion. Thank you. And now we've got Pamela Kerr with us today from the Refugee Advocacy Network about Andrew Wilkie's bill ending indefinite and arbitrary immigration detention bill 2021. So we will be talking about that. And, um, yeah, Pamela, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I just hoped you could start by telling us a little bit about this bill and what um, it's looking to do. Uh, This is the Andrew Wilkie bill that was introduced at the beginning of last year. Um, It is the current status of the bill is while it's been removed from the notice for the lower house, um, the committee... Um, the Joint Standing Committee on Migration are taking submissions and considering it. Now, the way in which people can assist who feel strongly about this indefinite arbitrary detention is they can put in a submission up till the 28th of January. Um, There's a very good uh, background um, notes on the uh, Rural Australians for Refugee website or they can go directly onto the um, Joint Standing Committee on Migration and there are, you know, people don't have to um, have extensive knowledge of the bill. A one-pager expressing their concern um, concerning, you know, the fact that people have been held in detention arbitrarily and... um, uh, indefinitely in this country is, a, is an absolute shame and there are many of us who are deeply disturbed by it. All they have to do is express that concern. It's, of course, recently come to the fore because of the Djokovic situation mm-hmm. where he was placed in what is an immigration detention, uh, they call it an APOD, alternative place of detention in the hotel in Carlton. Now, while people were concerned about that, he was there for four or five days, um, these men have been knocked up for two years. Can you imagine? Mm. Two years in a room. 
I talked to some of them. Do you know how bleak and empty their lives are? They are monitored by guards constantly. They have no privacy. They um, Most recently, I was contacted because the food that they received for dinner in a plastic container was crawling with maggots. Mm. Maggots. Oh. Um, because they have... Uh, Phones, which the ministers desperately tried to remove from them, they were able to take photographs mm. and provide proof. Now, can you imagine the mentality of a system where the guards dish up the food, the men open the box and it shows maggots and the food stinks and the guards shrug and they put the lid back on. Some of them gave it back to the guards. I think one man threw it on the ground in disgust. Now, that night, they received no alternative meal. There they are in Carlton, in the heartland of any number of places that could have provided food. The next morning, what happens for breakfast? They get bread and tea or coffee. Um, the bread arrives and it's mouldy, mouldy, covered in blue mould. Again, we've got photographs. Absolute proof. Can you imagine again the mentality? The guards open the bread. It's probably been frozen for a thousand years mm. and it's been defrosted in hot, humid conditions and it's covered in mould. It is not e eatable. So instead of ringing, you know, because nobody can do anything without seeking the approval of Canberra, instead of ringing the, the uh, mitre out there at Port Meadows, the detention centre, and saying, look, the bread's mouldy. Can we have permission to go down the road to the bakery and buy bread? Mm. No, no, they didn't do that. They did nothing, nothing. This is the mentality. It, these are just small incidents. When I spoke to the men, I said, you know, the food is horrible, yes, but it's not the food that worries us. It is our lack of freedom. We yearn to walk out in the fresh air. We yearn to be free. Um, and so at that stage, though, you know, half the men in that hotel had got COVID. They were mm. positive. So in order to deal with it, they basically locked them down in their rooms, which made things even worse. Then because they were getting really stir-crazy, they created this sort of space um, that had, uh, I suppose, um, half a metre of space between a, a fixed, uh, you know, a bit of a wall and the roof, and that was fresh air. And the men were allowed to go out there and smoke uh, for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Um, those who didn't smoke just went out there and sat and tried to breathe fresh air and, and you know, for a minute's relief from their rooms. I, I mean, we use the word torture, and, yes, torture has got an extreme um, context, but what do you call this? This is cruelty, absolute cruelty. These men are being held in these conditions. Now, they're following up on seven years offshore in appalling conditions mm. where they've seen their friends killed, where they've seen um, young, healthy men die of blood poisoning because they didn't get medical attention to a simple infected foot. I mean, these, the experience of these men has been appalling. They come to Australia and then they get locked in hotel rooms for two years. You know, there were 192 um, people brought down under the Medivac legislation. 
Now, people will remember the Medivac legislation was the first time this government lost a bill in the lower house, and they were furious about it. Mm. And so as soon as they could, eight months later, they repealed that legislation. But in that time, 192 people were assessed by doctors as requiring urgent medical treatment. They were transferred to Australia. Uh, A total of 70 are still locked up in Australian detention centres and APOTs. 122 were released. So, you know, we've got 33 down the road there in the Park Hotel. Um, This is really dirty business. Mm. Those 70 who are still locked up are truly political prisoners. And then you've got a court case and um, you see through the Djokovic lens um, the appalling conditions. I mean, you know, people have stood outside the hotel. They've stood outside the detention centres. We have tried everything we can to awaken the Australian people to the abuse that is taking place in their midst. Um, One good thing about Djokovic, it really opened the eyes of the world to a system that we've got in Australia where even the courts are unable to provide justice or fairness Mm. because the legislation is there for the minister with his God powers, the Minister of Immigration has got 47 individual powers and they will basically enable him to do what he likes. And so he has chosen to keep 70 Medivac detainees, they call them, um, they, they're, they're actual refugees, to keep them locked up in detention. Now, yesterday, and some people will note this, some fury. Um, yesterday, the day before, Morrison was interviewed by Ben Ford, and I think he's a Sydney shock jock type person on radio in Sydney with an enormous reach. And when he was asked why he kept the 33 men locked up in the Park Hotel, he said that they weren't refugees. Now, he has been slated about that because it is a blatant lie. There are a couple of men who have not got the process, but the majority are proven refugees. For God's sake, they've been in detention for nine years. If we can't make a decision in nine years, what's wrong with it? Mm. Um, did the interviewer um, push back on that at all, or did he I accept that? I haven't seen that that happened. Mm. In fact, um, I'm intending, and no doubt there are others, intending to contact uh, Fordham's mob, Mm-hmm. and say, do you realise that he told you a blatant lie? Because not only that, the next day he lied by saying he didn't say it. Now, you know... I've seen are... the transcripts, so I can... Com- yeah, because I spoke yeah. to you yesterday and looked at the transcript of the interview, and 100% <laughs> he, he said that. Yeah. Yes. Um, wow. We know he's got a record for lying. Um, mm. I, I don't know when the Australian people are going to decide that they don't want a liar for a Prime Minister. But um, that's a decision that will be made hopefully this year. And and of course, how do we stand up? We're small groups. We don't have um, the reach or the money to promulgate these lies. So 
how do we stand up? And then you get, so most Australians think, oh, yeah, the Prime Minister says they're not refugees. They should go home. They didn't go home. Mm. You know, it, it, this is the sort of um, backgrounding that has gone on that has removed refugees from uh, general humanity in Australia. You know, we're not a bad country. Why do we allow this? And I think what we're talking about today is a great sort of point of action for any listener who wants to do something yes. um, to submit a submission. Can you, um, can you just tell us how we might do that? Yes. Um, look, people can go to the Rural Australians Refugees. That's um, a website. Um, it's very easy to find. They've put, out, they've put a whole lot of information there, how to... Um, write the submission, who to send it to. They've given all the names of all the um, uh, senators uh, for, the, um, for the submission. So the Wonderful. material is all there. There's also a summary of the main points in the bill. Basically, the bill um, is designed to um, limit detention. You know, mm-hmm. this is not the first bill that's tried to do this. Um, senator Chris Evans, who was a Labor senator, who was the immigration minister back in 2008, he said, I have too much power. Um, these are powers that belong to God. Um, this is how the origin of the God powers came out. Um, that's what we call them, because they are the God powers. The immigration minister in this country has more power than anybody else. Wow. Anybody else. Wow. Um, so the thing people can do is write a submission even if it's a one-pager, yeah. if, we, if they get hundreds and hundreds of these, this um, shows the level of concern from Australians because, you know, this offends us too. Absolutely. We're Australians. We have a right to see fair and decent laws in this country. Mm. And it breaks our hearts when we see the pain and the cruelty to these people locked away. For no good reason. So, and Pamela, um, I I, I've really enjoyed speaking today. We're really, really important, but we have come to the end of the show now, unfortunately. Yes. Um, I'd love to have you back on again and speak to Andrew himself about this bill too. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today. And listeners, head over to ruralaustralians4refugees.org.au. All the information's there. Pamela, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Alice. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're going to have to race off, but we'll uh, catch up with you next Wednesday.